hydrogen, then, then I will gladly donate some of my stuff. Fantastic. Um, we know that, in the, I was talking to you earlier online, that um, in America they're very cognizant of the fact that you know, they want to preserve their, their history of comics and, and the universities are buying up large collections of mates that I know in the States and archiving it and saving it. Um, it's, it's a lot more difficult here, it would seem. I must admit, it's news to me the Americans were doing that. I didn't think they were on board either, to be honest with you. I knew there were some pockets, I know the Smithsonian's got some that was donated, but I didn't know anyone was actively seeking to gather and preserve. Um, but I mean, obviously it's difficult here, but it's always going to be difficult to begin, especially something as maligned as comic books have always been. I mean, I know you've got Posey there, of course, he's, he's a genius uh, and uh, an amazing talent. Um, and uh, I'm very sad of me there just to say hello and thank you for the books which I've enjoyed so much over the years. But you know, it's like, well, that's kind of seen bizarrely as not comics. You know, because you deal with adult themes and because you deal with such complexity with like emotional issues and such interesting topics, I think. Whereas what we're talking about here is stuff which is still dismissed because of the fact that it was, of course, created essentially for children. Most of it, or for such a broad age, started from children up. And I think that is the problem we have, which we don't face so much in preserving other kind of like pop culture entertainment. I mean, we had it with television for many, many years, and I'm a, I'm a government BFI, and one of the, the most important things the BFI does is, to, is archiving of film material, not just feature films, not just early British films that are seen as having value, where just about everyone, but like little moments of home movies, as well as kind of um, those kind of uh, entertainment, like the kind of shorts that we used to see. I, I dug one out to watch the other day when I was over there, The History of Clock Making. <laughs> which actually is surprisingly um, So those kind of things, which, which don't necessarily, the, the value of them isn't apparent to all initially, but if we lose that thing, what we're losing is this incredible rich texture, the fabric of our life back then, and, and the fact that Pete has so much kind of interesting information about the production of comics as well is what I think makes it super valuable, because the artwork will probably always survive, and it'll be a shame if it does disappear into private collections like mine. Um, <laughs> Everyone okay. have access and have a chance to see it and see it as it was created, you know, warts and all with the blemishes and the production notes on the side and the white up. I think there's a real kind of lesson and a kind of a connection that you get to the work when you see that. But at the same time, seeing what artists were paid, seeing how many books were produced, seeing when and where and how they were distributed is fascinating and crucial, I think, important to something which is now an industry that until it successfully transplants itself over to the new media platforms, which is a struggle that everyone's having, then it's in danger of dying out. And we'll probably never see, I suspect we'll never see a kind of a, a, a print uh, empire or, or industry or, you know, a, uh, just the quality of that work being produced on paper ever again in our lifetimes because that's kind of gone. So once again, we're preserving something which is not only culturally hugely significant, I think, but also important because it's probably the last time we'll see that until, of course, post-Brexit when we no longer have electricity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got another revelation for you, Jonathan. Um, Mr. Mr. Chris Murray, who's sitting over here, um, has been to your film archive and found a whole bunch of stuff belonging to the great Dennis Gifford that you have. Yeah. Well, as a, as a, well you say I have. Really, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, but um, there's a lot of stuff that we got from Dennis Gifford. There's a lot of stuff that came out way by Bob Monkhouse. There's a lot of stuff. There's not actually that much film stuff, though, to do with um, the comic industry. There's a you know, percentage-wise, anyway, it's a small amount. But there is some rich stuff there, so there's stuff we could dig out if we wanted to try and combine forces or maybe have some kind of an event where people can see that because there's some interesting, there's a very early 
TV interview that many of you may have seen with Alan Moore about the time he was just work, beginning to work for DC, before Vertigo existed even, where he goes on TV, and I think he's speaking to Gaz Tops, I think that was, <laughs> and he shows him the printed script of one of the early Swamp Thing books, of course. So there, there, there is some footage out there, some really interesting archive footage, but uh, it's not a problem, but I think we'd be, I would be wary of us in any way kind of linking this with any other kind of form of storytelling. You know, there's always been that. You, I think comics used to suffer from that thing that people would by, try to elevate comics by saying, well, they're kind of like films on paper, and of course they are. Um, and I think if any way of trying to tie them into another form of entertainment where funding is kind of being pinched and scarce in all those areas, I don't think it would necessarily do us any favours. I think that the crucial thing would be to point out that, and I think more so than cinema, and to an extent more so than TV, people have a very strong emotional bond with the comic books from the youth. I think, you know, I mean, I know we do all love our TV shows, and by the way, Cat Weasel was on TV this afternoon. Um, <laughs> but there's a, there's a bond, I think, and everyone knows the big characters. Uh, and I know um, uh, DC Thompson, is it DC Thompson on Beano and Dandy? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I know they're trying to, I know because someone I know has been approached to talk whether they'd be interested in, in writing a script for a movie set in the, in the Beano first. <laughs> which doesn't really well off the tongue, does it? Um, but, uh, but obviously there's attempts to make them, we see them being, you know, the characters and that kind of rich uh, IP going off into television and other areas. But there's a connection I think we all have to those characters back then, you know, characters from you know, the Bastard Kids, Lord Snooty and his gang. And I think to actually preserve that and show that to people, especially to a generation who haven't grown up with that, but to realise, in a way, those kind of stories and those kind of ventures and that take on the world is what kind of informed the generation that came before. I think it's interesting, it's fascinating, and it is like looking, it's just, it should, it should be really valued as much as when we look at the original publications that went War of the Worlds in serial form, and the early Dickens stories, you know, it's, it's, it's crucial to our history as storytellers, and as entertainers, and, and it's magical in the way that it connects us, even now, I look at a page, and I like seeing, you know, especially British comics, I like seeing them in the original form, I haven't seen that much in the original art, but there's something about seeing the terrible quality paper they were printed on, and the terrible quality of the printing. I mean, when I see them, when I see books reprinted, I know Titan did a nice job recently with Spider, and is it the Iron Hand? I think Steel Claw. Steel Claw. Um, Steel Claw. The Iron Claw, thank you. When you see that printed on good paper, it kind of, even though it's beautiful to see the artwork, and you really see the lines and the amount of cross-hatching those guys put in, but it actually kind of diminishes it in a peculiar sort of way, because you don't have that immediate kind of visceral connection to this frankly shitty paper that it was put out that decayed almost the minute you put a finger on it. Um, and I think actually having that connection, you know, the volume of books that Peter has, as well as the artwork, as well as the kind of the, the business side of it, or the information, it's, uh, it, I would have thought once in a lifetime chance to keep this all together and to share it with people. I think, um, you know, it's, it's really good to hear you talking about this, Jonathan, because it's a thing that's very, very... Um, off the radar for many, many people out there, but I, I can tell you that the exhibition that I present, well, I actually put a lot of artwork into for Seven Stories, which is actually the Children's Book Museum in Newcastle. Um, the first year that it went on tour, they actually garnered £60,000 in profit from that wow. exhibition. And they're expecting somewhere between 150 and 180,000. So I think you're right in what you're saying that it still strikes a note with people that are out there. But 
it's interesting because I know I remember speaking to someone, uh, I can't remember, someone in one of the art bodies that I was forced to, to have a meeting with, and um, <laughs> they, they were surprised that when they do a photographic exhibition, exhibition of you know one of the great photographers or some of the great photographers, they're normally more kind of tickets are more fiercely fought over and they're more well attended than almost any other fine art exhibition. You know, and I think that's probably because that is once again that's something we all relate to as a texture of life, but it, but it's getting. It's getting the message out there that, you know, there used to be, there was that terrible cliché buzzword of the 80s that comics aren't just for kids anymore. Um, and to an extent, I think that, that there's an element of that we have to fight against, which is that it's seen as, because it's seen as the most ephemeral uh, of the sort of um, cul-de-sac of storytelling that people went down because it was seen as so much product of its time and age and so disposable. Especially in a way, I think I think we suffer from England because there were maybe weekly comic books. There's something about that I think psychologically makes people think they were far away. You know, here's one, there's another one straight away, and and because we didn't more often than not, we didn't build a kind of ongoing narrative, a big multi-part story. Um, that that's one of the reasons why collectors I think weren't as fiercely kind of um, uh, passionately involved in seeking them down. 2018 changed that, of course. But if we're talking about the old comics. It was that weekly treat, and if you missed one, it didn't matter. Um, so there isn't that kind of body where like, you need to see how a story developed, but, uh, but at the same time, I think if we pitch it, if we do talk to people as we should do, as it being this kind of magnificent, evolving art form, in which you can see the kind of uh, kind of often behind faster moving media, but you can see the changing values in society, the way we engage with different things coming into our lives, you know, different cultures, different people, different traditions. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating historical archive as well as being something which celebrates an amazing art form. Anybody want to have a question? Chris? Uh, well, part of what we've been thinking about today is uh, the way in which we approach uh, British comics history. And I think that those of us who research British comics history, either from an academic point of view or from the point of view of kind of fan historians or, or, or whatever, I think we all come to the view that the story that people think they know about British comics history is nowhere near the whole story. It's so much more rich uh, and complex and diverse than, than people think. So, I mean, Julia's recently done a book about Misty. You're looking at it from a gothic point of view. Uh, I've done a book about the British superhero. People tend to think there aren't really British superheroes. So wherever you look, the, history, the rich history that is there is, is one that isn't particularly understood in, it, in its complexity, in its, its depth. People think they know the history of British comics. And that goes to all the, as you mentioned, all the, the foreign artists that have been involved in it, the transnational relationships. I wonder, from your perspective as being a kind of long-time fan and collector, what, what do you think is the, the key thing about British comics history that you're most interested in that you, don't, you think people don't really know enough about and should know more about? Well, I mean, for me, if you're, I mean, there's probably two answers. For me, it's the creators. You know, I only know a handful of the names, and I think, I mean, we've had an ongoing struggle getting people to name and perhaps, you know, in, 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 it's an opinion-based thing, of course, it's subjective, but to give credit where it's due to the artists, whoever the writers, we all know that Stan Lee, an incredible talent though he was, was a credit hog, and over the years, you know, I've made a point of trying to make sure that people appreciate the input of his co-creators like Kirby and Dick Cole and Wiley Wood and, you know, Don Heck and some of the other early guys, uh, but those names now are fairly well known, especially in pop culture circles, and even outside of it, people, I mean, everyone knows Stan Lee, because he was a great self-promoter, but Kirby, the name is it's fairly well known now, 
you know, even in Hollywood circles and that. So it's taken a long while, I think, to get there. But I think the fact that there's a hand, I only know a handful of, of British comic creators, and that's probably via the fact that the 2000 AD gave them credit. But those credits who are working, I mean, I don't know, I don't think Misty gave credits, but we don't really know the story of these creators. We don't know who they were, and I, and I think it's fascinating to find out who they were. I mean, that, one, for me, the great romance of comics. Uh, in a way, is that these people are more often than not, and about American comics as much as anything, were working in this field because they really wanted to tell those stories. You know, and they probably could have got paid and would have got paid, and many went on to get paid more and have more comfortable lives working outside of the comic industry. But many of them felt themselves irresistibly drawn back in. There was something about them telling their stories in their combination of words and pictures on the printed page that they couldn't resist. And I kind of love that momentum. I think that's true of so many of the of the British companies. And the fact that you've got the story of these great publishing houses like DC Thompson, you know, big family-owned company. I mean, I think there were there were stories to be told, and there's information to be given out that we, we just don't have access to. And I would love to find out more about all the creators. You know, and you have to really search. You have to search. I know, and I know a lot of people have done work in that. There's research you can find online, and Titan have published some good books, and they normally go uh, as deep into the history as they can. But I think that's something which I think would be um, would be a joy, you know. And, and once again, it's something which, as we are growing more aware of how important it is to make sure that, that credit is given where it's due, you know. I mean, I love the, the Brooms and Royal Woolley, and to see more about those creators as well, people who created, uh, I'm, I'm saying regional, it's not, that's not the correct phrase, but, you know, stories which use the dialect and, and was set in a specific region of the UK. I think that's sort of wonderful, it's charming, it's, it, and it's very powerful to put that message out there. Once again, to go back to BFI, one of the things that we have to be the most successful is when we find archive footage and clips which are specifically for areas which maybe people wouldn't have seen film coming from there before. You know, so we find a, 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 a fate, a, a church fate that was filmed in Edwardian times in Dumfries. And people love seeing that footage. They see the fashions and the attitudes and the society that existed back then. And often they'll see distant relatives and working through the background. But there's a connection to that. And I think that's what Peter has to give back. And that's what we have to kind of exploit and sell to people is the fact that the, these are the comics that were produced here, kind of by us, for us, with help from all over the world, of course. But they were telling our stories and they have a peculiar quality which you don't find in America. Even when we did do it, you mentioned superhero books, but when we did superhero books, you know, when you say superhero books, I think of Billy the Cat. You know, I think those weird things, which almost were like, um, like those kind of, you know, I'm trying to remember the Children's School Foundation, whatever it's called, those sort of things. They had a weird kind of, they didn't quite get it, but they got it right in their own specific way. You know, and Posey stuff, which is so peculiarly kind of like British as well, in a, in a glorious way. You know, so I think to actually tap into the kind of cultural quality of what these books have, what these histories have, and actually sell that as something which is so crucial and so undervalued, unexplained, and much of it unknown. Uh, so I would agree with you entirely that the, the history of all these creators is, is waiting to be unearthed and waiting to be exposed. Well, we, we don't want to keep you on all night, Jonathan, so I'll ask if anybody has a question. Dave, do you have a question? No. I have no questions of Jonathan at all. Very well said, Jonathan. <laughs> Very well said. For once, I agree with you. <laughs> Anybody? Um, oh, there's one lady in the back here. Um, I've got a question. What's the medium for telling these stories? I mean, is there a TV documentary in it, a book, a newspaper article? You know, what's going to be a good way of telling that story? I, I thought the best, the best way probably of telling the story is that he's actually, you know, having that in some sort of permanent exhibition space, I would have thought, or a 
permanent space that we can in travel with because I think actually you can't be seeing it, touching it, seeing it in the flesh. There are, there are documentaries to be made. I don't know how many of the creators are still alive and it's often hard to get the story. And, and, and also, you know, as someone who's worked on, on documentaries, it's hard to really uh, justify making them if you are not certain you're, you're getting the truth, you know. I know truth is in its own way subjective often, but speaking to the creators is as close as we can get to them often than not. With so many of them going, uh, it's going to be hard to do that, but also it's hard to find that kind of thing. If you're making a high-end documentary, it's hard to do that. I mean, I'm thinking of doing some more, I'm thinking of doing some sort of podcasting thing just to grab some kind of people. Well, I know, uh, this sounds so morbid, I know, but before they die, <laughs> that's just horrible. Well, I spoke to Jim Stranko recently, and I asked him, I said, Jim, of course, you're probably never going to die because, you know, you know, you're bizarre in that way. How, how do you keep so fit? He told me he keeps fit. He keeps himself young by, he lives uh, next to a mountain. Every morning he runs up and down the mountain with his dogs. He tells me he drinks no coffee and eats no red meat. And he told me, quote, this is for banquet, he copulates like a 20-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> that's not specifically comic information, but that's the kind of thing I'm But of course, many of the great creators from Action for Battle from from, from 2008, you know, they're getting younger. I know we lost Carlos, I think, and it was in this year or last year. So a lot of the great artists who worked in that. Fortunately, touch with Dave Gibbons is with us and will be for many more years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, still it would be good to speak to these people and get their stories and, and weave them together in some sort of tapestry. And even if they don't agree, you know, we can, in a kind of Nabokovian pale fireway, form our own version of the truth from that uh, and I think um, so maybe a combination of actually having even if we just do big interviews with people and save them and don't use them that would be worthwhile and maybe put that in with the archive uh, and then who knows in the future because at the moment we're still struggling to know what platforms are going to survive as it is it may well be that we do have it all online and maybe with the online as we see it doesn't exist anymore and there's a different way of, of this information being accessible to people I'll speak to Charlie Booker, he probably knows what's waiting for us all. But that's the, the key, I think, at the moment, though, is to save it, to preserve it, keep it in one space, and gather as much as we can. Well, listen, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much, and I want to thank you for your patience this afternoon, because it was very difficult hopping in and out of what was going on, and I know I was keeping you waiting, so I apologise for that. I was just panicked I was going to miss it, because after I missed turning up, and then I was, I kept sending people panicky emails going, haven't heard from you, what time, where are you, no one's picking up the Skype, what's going on? Hang on, hang on, hang on, I have one question for you, right? I won't, I won't preface it by telling you what my wife thinks of me collecting comics. What does your wife think of you and your love of comics? Um, she, I mean, my wife, I think, appreciates, she likes, she likes some comics. When I first met Jane, before we knew each other, well, she'd already, we were talking about comics, and she'd already read, read Watchmen. Hey. 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 There you go, that, that was like in 87 we met, so it only just come out. So, um, so that's, I think... In a way, it kind of helped us form a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I was like the crew. She was probably there before me on the point. And she knew about Love and Rockets. She was a big Love and Rockets fan. So, there you go. Yeah, I wonder which one of Watchmen she thought you were. <laughs> well, I think uh, I'm clear as we uh, All of us sort of trouble men think we're war such. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Jonathan. I know Alan Moore was very disappointed with us all. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, I couldn't 
Scott Cup's not done I'd love to see your stuff and let's all think about how we take this forward to uh, some kind of a, a, a way of preserving it all well Thank thanks you. very much Jonathan and uh, can we give him a big round yay thank you thank you